It's different, but the core of it's still the same. They both have Adam Brody in it, too. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. However, as we said last episode, this month we're doing something new, something a little different. We've always discussed directors on the show as well, um, but this month, every episode, we're talking about a different director. Specifically, we're talking about a different female filmmaker, because um, many of our episodes have been kind of male-dominated in terms of the directors that we've done. Um, we have a lot of female filmmakers we love talking about that don't always fit into genre categories. This one today might be a little different. She's done a lot of certain genre pictures before. Um, but yeah, before we dive into today's director... Thomas, can you talk about like some stuff we talked about last week on Deborah Granick or kind of like what we're what we're doing this month, I guess? Yeah, I mean, so so something that's gonna be kind of a continuing theme and we covered in our Deborah Granick series is is how difficult it is specifically for female filmmakers to get work made. And especially with with Deborah Granick, what we were talking about is she is kind of rarely one director who has been able to kind of work within one specific genre or, or very specifically to make films that are all thematically similar and important to her but that has come at the cost of taking a lot of time in between to make these projects happen which is why she only has uh three narrative features three and, and, and yeah. a documentary um yeah and so that was something we discussed last week was was deborah granick is someone who could fit within this kind of female filmmakers that work within one genre, but how very rare that is for yeah. female filmmakers, because what you do see a lot of times are, are female filmmakers kind of taking the opportunities that they can get, which may lead them outside of one specific genre. And, and like we said, it just being very difficult and time consuming. If you are, invested in like making sure your one vision is seen throughout your films it's a lot yeah more time consuming and difficult to to make that happen for a female filmmaker than it would be for a male filmmaker no i agree and and today's person of discussion karen kusama um she she's gonna have i mean i know you have a huge history on her that we'll talk about um but she's someone who has had an interesting career in terms of genres. Mm -hmm. It's like, she's done a good bit of horror, um, specifically with at least, uh, I guess two, uh, two features two and a, and a two features segment in a, in an anthology. Yeah. Film. But it's also done things like a drama or kind of like a sci-fi film, but then also like a very like neo-noir film. Um, but it's interesting. And we'll discuss this more as we get into it, but like, Anytime we look at like a specific director, um, when you look at it as a whole, instead of looking at like say a film every few months or every few years, you don't really see the connections between them. But it was interesting what looking at Kusama's films, just like Granix, to see how they still are connected in some way yeah. from film to film. It was yeah. interesting doing this. It's like if I just watched The Invitation uh and then watched Girl Fight three years ago, I might not catch how similar um all of her films are in some way and there's one there's two or one big thematic thing or one theme i want to talk about as we get into this that i didn't realize till last night when i was watching uh the invitation till 4 a.m in the morning 
uh, of like what is consistent in a weird way, either in the foreground or the background through Kusama's films, which we'll talk about uh, more mm-hmm. as we get into it. Uh, yeah, Thomas and I are in the same city for the first time. I just want to say that out there. <laughs> and yet we're not recording in the same room. <laughs> we're still on Zoom because we don't know how to deal with it. In our, our Zoom setup was just too good. We, uh... <laughs> it was too good. <laughs> we didn't know how it would play if we were like in the same room together uh, with our laptops. Um, but yeah, to go with your, your female, we talk about female filmmakers, you said, it's like, yeah, it's like we're looking at kind of how, in some cases, a lot of these filmmakers uh, don't get the second chance sometimes, or, or the third chance, or fourth chance, as some male filmmakers might, specifically in these specific eras of like the 90s or 2000s, um, and kind of how, in some cases, what's interesting with, with Kusama and Granik, they're both directors that I feel would work incredibly well in the TV scape. But besides like Kusama's, like I guess she did like the outsider. She's like a few episodes of the outsider. She, she's, on HBO. A, she's actually done a lot of television. Oh, has she? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. No, she has. I'm sorry. But I mean more like, I guess I'm thinking like a, like she's like the, the Kerry Fukunaga type stuff. Yeah. Like, like just t- handle one herself. Yeah. Handle one, handle one herself. We she hasn't really, really seen done that. that. She, she, and we'll talk about this later. She, she just recently did a pilot for a Disney plus series. Um, okay. That we will come to, we'll come to find out as we go through her life that someone very close to her, uh, wrote, but, um, she was probably the series she was most involved in. She didn't do the pilot, but she did a lot of halt and catch fire. And I think yeah. she kind of, if you watch that show, I do think her style kind of rubbed off on that show some from from her work that was on it. Yeah. Um. So yeah. I so thoughts on Ken Kusama. So so you this was your pick, Thomas. Yeah. And why? I guess what what attracted you to her work? Uh, I, honestly, Karen Kusama. The, part of the reason why I'm so interested in her now is because i think i i was actively a part of the like writing off of karen kusama as it was happening i was i was (laughs) one of the people who who helped put her in movie jail which is a term that's going to come up a lot uh this week especially it's this idea of of, and and the idea exists for all directors is this after you do like a really bad movie or or a flop you kind of have to do this time of penance and it's and it's been But the idea is for for male filmmakers, that just means, hey, you need to lay low. You might go a year or two without any work, but it, it'll come. No one's yeah. going to offer you a project immediately on the back end of a flop, but it'll come in a year yeah. or two. And um, there's been a lot of filmmakers who did a couple of years in movie jail and have, have been able to, to bounce back and, 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 you know, make something else afterwards. There's been a lot of filmmakers who have recovered from a flop, but with kusama what we're gonna see is is uh at one point almost nine years in movie jail after one of one flop but um i specifically i will we'll get more into this but i i remember eon flux coming out and bombing i didn't see it at the time but i just remember everyone not liking that movie and then yeah. i saw jennifer's body opening weekend at theater and i did not like it mm. and i remember when she was like when the invitation started popping up at festivals i remember thinking like oh karen kusama <laughs> karen kusama's back and um and then i saw the invitation i don't want to get too much into it but um it definitely made me go oh wow maybe we need to reconsider where we've where where what i've been thinking what my opinion of karen kusama is 
And then, there, you know, that has also kind of led to this complete reconsideration of Jennifer's body over the last, I don't know, maybe five years. So, yeah. and, and so it's been a very interesting career for her. And, and it, she's someone I, I read a lot of interviews with her for the invitation. And then also when destroyer was coming out and she's just someone who's got a lot, she's had a very interesting journey and, and she's, I think she has a very interesting voice, but she's had a, I think, I think her experience with, with studio, like Hollywood studios kind of exemplifies what female filmmakers go through. Yeah. And you'll probably get more into this as you talk about the history, but like, yeah, she does girl fight, which is a very indie movie. Uh, and then does Eon flux, which is like big budget, sci-fi film and then jennifer's body uh two very studio driven films that i mean i don't say jennifer's body failed because it looks like it made money in some way um but underperformed or failed in some way either critically or financially um and that's what kind of hurt a lot of it uh, a lot of her kind of i guess rise in a way uh, but yeah, with Imitation, because to, to give a little of my history with Kusama as well, uh, pre this episode, I'd only seen The Invitation fully. Um, the Invitation was the only one I'd seen, and it was one that was it was a video store movie for me, where it was kind of like, yo, have you heard about this movie, The Invitation? It's on the new release shelf and like just came out. My buddy Matt told me, he's like, it's, it's really good. And that kind of became when I worked there where that became like one of the rotations of stuff, like you're looking for a horror film, check out the invitation. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the one that we would always kind of put of like, it's one you haven't heard of, but it's really kind of really different for, for what is out there in terms of the horror genre. And that was, it. I, I, I knew a little bit about girl fight cause we'd watched part of it uh, in a class I took at Alabama about like in about film festivals and kind of like the indie movement and girl fight was one of them with, with Karen Kusama. Um, but yeah, so it's like this, this kind of uh, week of movie watching is very interesting. Um, and it makes me appreciate her stuff more, even if there is like one that I don't like, which we'll talk about. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think she, she is a, underrated I, I i mean it's my hand here but i think she's underrated like i said surprised that she hasn't gotten like a here's a, a season of a horror show mm -hmm. to do like why why she hasn't say directed a, like done like a tv show hard or a tv show for blumhouse i don't know yet um but anyway so wh where do we go to now this is thomas's first this is your first director episode yeah all right so i guess you're getting me the the early beginnings of karen kusama yeah we take you now to a uh st louis suburb in 1968 oh wow when uh karen kusama was born to uh a psychiatrist and a psychologist who met wow. in school okay uh, that makes a little more sense okay that makes sense <laughs> to me now okay uh so she said it was a very intelligent she grew up in a very intellectually lively household um but she said it was a, it was a pretty lonely childhood. Her her father um, is of Japanese descent. Her mother is of uh, Caucasian descent. But they were really the only people of of any sort of non Caucasian descent in her neighborhood. So she was a little ostracized because of it. And uh, like any any filmmaker's origin stories, uh, she turned to cinema at a, at a kind of young age to be her friend. Um, she said around the age of thirteen, she started having her parents just drop her at the local art house theater for the whole day on saturday and she'd just watch 
everything. Wow. Um, her favorite actor at the time was Warren Beatty, and she said she remembers one time that that she pulled off McCabe and Mrs. Miller parallax view and Splendor in the Grass in one day at the local art house theater. That's a great day, though. That is a great day of that's a that's a. I don't know if the triple feature in terms of like it's just Beatty because they're very all three very different, but that's a good day of movie watching. Mm-hmm. Um, what really changed things for her though was was seeing uh, a movie we're going to talk about in a few weeks. Uh, Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, that came out and then not long after Martha Coolidge's Valley Girl and she said it just kind of hit her like oh my gosh women can do this and that was when she said that that's what I'm going to do I'm gonna I'm gonna make films so um, she got a scholarship to to Tish yet again another Tish grad um, made her thesis won a lot of prizes she flew out to LA met a bunch of agents on her graduation but nothing really took hold uh, she spent the next 10 years in New York taking film adjacent jobs here and there, some freelance editing. She was doing some writer's assistant work. She was babysitting amongst all of it. And uh-huh. uh, eventually a couple that she nannied for introduced her to a filmmaker friend of theirs, someone we've talked about on this podcast before, John Sales. We have, yeah. And he was in prep for his 1996 film Lone Star, which we oh covered. wow which is the exact film we talked about <laughs> yeah and and he hired kusama on as his assistant so she was the director's wow. assistant for lone star okay and uh during the process on lone star you know just in kind of conversation during work sales found out that kusama had this script she'd been kicking around inspired by her time at a boxing gym in new york um she wanted to write a story about a troubled teen girl who turns to boxing as an outlet for a lot of her pent-up aggression Mm-hmm. um sales really liked the idea gave her a lot of notes while they were working on the project and then when lone star ended he told kusama that he had to fire her because uh the, he said she's been kind of wandering in the wilderness for it seemed like a year and a half with a very good script he said and i i said karen you just have to dedicate yourself to this one thing that seems like a john sales thing to say by yeah. the way kusama spent the better part of the next year shopping the script around but everyone she met with all the studios she met with just took issue with the fact that Kusama insisted it had to be a um, Latina teenage girl to reflect the area of New York that, that she was writing about. She, and she wanted it to be authentic. Um, and no one wanted to make it. This was like 1999. No one yeah. wanted to make a film starring a Latina lead. Um, so eventually she got she the story is she she got some funding but uh lost it very close to the start of filming and sales and and his life partner maggie renzi stepped in and and financed the majority of the film's um one million dollar budget so they were underway sales said he had really he had been keeping up with kusama and he really appreciated her for sticking to her guns when it came Mm -hmm. to especially you know casting the lead so they got underway, open casting calls. Kusama wanted a, an unknown for the film. And I mean, there honestly, there just weren't a lot of Latina teen actresses out there in the first place because um, no one yeah. had really been giving them a shot. So yeah. um, open casting calls were held. Kusama eventually chose a young actress by the name of Michelle Rodriguez, who had uh, worked as an extra on some films before, but had never even auditioned for a speaking role. Wow. And... <laughs> kusama describes rodriguez's first audition as a disaster um but she said she could never find anyone else who had the fire or the physical power of 
mm-hmm. Michelle Rodriguez. So she said, you know what? We got to go for what's innate within her and we'll, we'll, you know, I'll work on the rest. So, uh, that's how, that's how she came to cast Rodriguez and they, and they got underway on a, on a very small indie shoot. No, it's girl fright. Um, yeah. So, um, what, what this was your first time watching girl fight. Yes. It's my first time watching girl fight like fully. Cause I said, we, we had watched, we had a class at Alabama about like about film festivals and we, and the professor would, we'd have a discussion about the previous film or whatever uh, and kind of have a topic. We have like, we had reading for every single thing we did and girl fight was one of them. Other ones just as shout out. What was that class about? It was like Justin Lin's better luck tomorrow. Um, there was, uh, uh, I feel like spring breakers might've been in there, but maybe it's just, I remember that professor loved spring breakers. Might <laughs> why I'm thinking of that. Um, upstream color was another one. Uh, but girl fight, I distinctly remember just the discussion of it more because of the John Sales stuff. Mm-hmm. Because our professor was talking about kind of because like, John Sales is he's not like king, like the father of indie films. That's probably or American indie films. That's pretty much John Cassavetes. Um, but he was kind of like that next wave of indie films before there was really indie films. Yeah, in America, it's the pre Soderbergh stuff, and. When watching Girl Fight now and then hearing more what you're saying about Sales and the Maggie Renzi, who's who has also been with Sales pretty much since his first film, Return of the Scott 7, it has an interesting vibe to it. it both the films feel like they're made out of a place of hunger, for lack of a better word, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. It's like there is an interesting kind of connection between the two. And I, I went to, weirdly, I went to a retrospective that they did at UCLA uh, and American Cinematheque pre-COVID where Sales came and talked about the movies he'd done. And he talks about Return of Sakaka 7 of how, like, I didn't make a horror film like the other, like, Camerons and the Dantes of the world because I wanted to make a movie that if I only got a chance to make one movie and that was it, I wanted to be something I was proud of and something I had to say. And when I see girl fight, I feel like that goes with the same kind of mentality. Mm. I feel like Kusama is like, this is the script I want to tell. And if I'm only getting one shot at this, this is the movie I want to like go in on and go out on. If that makes sense. Yeah. Cause girl, girl fight just has this cool like edge to it. It's rough around the edges for sure. Cause Mm. of what, of what it is. Um, but Kusama's direction and Michelle Rodriguez's performance, I think really, uplift this film to a point where it is kind of this interesting gem of this era mm-hmm. uh specifically with like just female sports movies too like before that kind of became a thing really like i, I remember i did read how like if you don't have this do you have million dollar baby four years later yeah uh it, it, it it's weirdly for this little movie with girl fight how it kind of did inspire a specific genre of film with the female sports genre, but also Michelle Rodriguez. It's like, she's part of the family now in fast <laughs> and furious. So, um, but yeah. No, yeah, so my first time seeing it, my first time seeing it, I really enjoyed this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- that's my long winded answer saying I really enjoyed this film. Uh, but I didn't have a history with it. Um, yeah, her direction, she already sets up stuff in her direction or her directing style that would reoccur later on. But yeah, had you seen it before this, not, before this, no. Yeah, I haven't seen this one. So what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, like you said, it, it, you know, like any kind of debut indie, it's a little rough around the edges, but she, I think she shows a great control of the camera for sure. She, you know, especially mm-hmm. knowing now 
kind of how how malleable Michelle Rodriguez was at the start. The yeah, the, yeah. the performance she gets out of her is fantastic. I really love. I think my my favorite scene in the movie and 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 Kusama's not the first person to do POV during a boxing scene, but when she's fighting the the only time she fights like another female boxer. Um she does this like back and forth like POV where the the punches are just coming right at the camera and they'll like fill the whole yeah. frame up and you, she'll hit you with this like boxing sound and it makes it feel like it's visceral like it makes it feel yeah. really brutal um yeah and i like that she kind of every fight she kind of covers a different way like she never really falls yeah. into like there's one fight that she shoots from like overhead looking down on it like she never really falls into one specific style of shooting for the fights and it keeps it it keeps it feeling fresh throughout yeah and i wonder just i don't know because i don't want to assume anything with this but like i wonder if that was if there was any taking note of scorsese with raging bull mm-hmm. because i know scorsese has said i never wanted to shoot the fight never wanted to shoot a fight same way twice mm-hmm. every every fight needed to feel fresh and different and i feel like she does that very well yeah i love i love her aerial shots and i don't know about if it's aerial but just like the kind of looking down that's gonna pop up too in a lot of her films with these like she, it doesn't destroy her when it's like looking down at a coffee cup this kind of like god point of view in a way mm-hmm. but still still like above i don't know it's interesting um of how she does it but everything i think throughout her directing stuff no matter if i like the films or dislike the films there is a distinct style yeah to all of they're all they're all well directed at the mm-hmm. end of the day um they're all well directed with interesting shot selections very different so- shot selections um but yeah th- to hear that rochelle had not done anything is is kind of incredible yeah um because she because michelle rodriguez is not someone you think of of, of like rodriguez has a persona about her i feel like michelle rodriguez is, is like fully formed in this movie, like for the rest of her career, it feels yeah. like it's like she feel like it's it's incredible to see, like not to say that Michelle Reyes doesn't have range, but I'm just saying like she, you the way you see her in this is the same energy she can kind of give off in a little bit more comedic in certain spots, but like Avatar, uh, or Fast and the Furious series. Yeah, um, there is this kind of as you said, this kind of fire in her eyes throughout all of her all of her films. Hi, Dad. You stole money from me. I'm gonna pay you back. And who's this guy you've been running around with? Dad. What the hell happened to you? Did he do this to you? Adrian? No. How could you let him do this to you, huh? Get away from me. That's how it goes. You hook up with a creep who knocks you around, huh? Oh, what? You're so reformed now? You're giving me advice? I'm not going to let this happen to my daughter. What's going on? Go to your room. Not my mother. Get out of here, Tiny. No. I said get out of here. Don't you fucking touch him. You think mom would give me the same wise advice? You know what? That's it. You give me back what you took from me, and if I catch you running around with this pendejo again, I swear to God... You what? Fucking kill me? So a little bit going to the aftermath because this one had an interesting uh kind of fallout. Uh, it was a hit at Sundance on its release. It um it tied for the grand jury prize with uh Kenneth Onergan's "You Can Count on Me." Wow, that's a solid year. Yeah, and it won, and Kusama won the directing prize. To date, she is the only filmmaker 
to win grand jury prize and directing prize for on in the same year for the same film at sundance wow okay and so fervor for the movie launched a bidding war at sundance eventually setting for three million dollars and earning sales his investment back um the distribution was tough yeah. though and uh despite very good reviews the movie only made about 1.4 million at the box office um it's since been pointed to as one of the earlier examples of what's been come to known as the Sundance bubble, where um, it's this kind of phenomenon where we're, where you're there, you're at Sundance, everyone's talking oh, yeah. about this movie. You think, yeah. oh my gosh, my studio has to have this movie. You launch into this bidding war and then you come out having spent millions and millions of dollars on this movie that while good might not be marketable. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it's happened it's happened many times since then and and it 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 looks bad on the movie because then the movie becomes labeled as a flop when it doesn't earn you your money back um yeah so yeah while the loss for the distributor made a lot of people view the film kind of as a failure on the back end it was still critically acclaimed and prize winning and kusama's debut at the box office um you know if you're looking at the numbers for her first movie at the box office she still made more money than some other indie male directors on their directorial yeah. debut, like Todd Haynes or David O. Russell didn't break 1.4 million on the release of their first films. So Kusama starts getting some meetings around town. She's already got an idea for her next film. It's a sci-fi comedy, uh, kind of similar to um, Kafka's Metamorphosis, but in which a man is just kind of slowly, inexplicably morphing into a woman. And... Um, <laughs> everyone turned it down because kusama's vision was it would start with like a bigger male star and at some point in the movie he would be replaced by a female actor and everybody said i'm not going to get a hollywood star to sign on to do like half a movie and then be replaced so um got shot down and and eventually the meetings kind of kind of dried up so um It was about four years later uh she had no bites on her film pitches uh kusama was sent uh her agent sent her a script for a project that MTV was trying to get off the ground. Um, it was a film adaptation or yeah, a film adaptation of the TV cartoon Aeon Flux, which was a started as a series of animated shorts that was part of MTV's liquid television program, which would show these like very quick kind of yeah. animated um, shorts. And it became fairly popular during liquid television, eventually becoming a half hour cartoon series on MTV it was distinctive at its time for really being, it was a, kind of the boom of adult cartoons. It was around the same time as um, Daria, Beavis and Butthead, uh, South Park, you know, Simpsons, obviously. Um, but it was really the only adult cartoon series to be just a drama. There was nothing, nothing comedic about Eon Flux. Yeah. yeah. Eon Flux in which a uh, scantily clad assassin in dominatrix gear um, spends most of the episodes trying to assassinate technocrat trevor goodchild um only for her to often fail and die in many of the episodes and then just kind of show back up alive in the next episode with like little Mm -hmm. continuity very bizarre i don't know if you if you've seen any i never watched this i never watched the show no it's 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 really strange and it's before it it had a lot of like as a fully american film it had or series it had a lot of anime influences on it but this was a time before anime was getting a lot of distribution in the united states so it was kind of a lot of people's introductions to that kind of style and it was just very like overtly sexual very violent um and so it was was really transgressive at the time for mtv for sure Mm -hmm. 
And so they had commissioned a film adaptation to try and match the Matrix fever going around in the early 2000s. That makes sense. And um, writers Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi came on to make some sort of sense of the mostly plotless uh, TV series. Uh, so they had put a script together. Kusama received that script. And she was certain she wasn't going to get the job. But she put together some storyboards and some visual references and submitted them. Uh, and she said she was handed the gig almost immediately. Apparently, none of the other directors had even bothered to put in that much prep work. Wow. Um, the movie had originally been budgeted at $110 million, but when Kusama came on as a second-time director with only a million-dollar movie under her belt, the mm. uh, the budget was slashed to $50 million. And so she still cites a lot of creative support in pre-production from Sari Lansing, who was the president of Paramount at the time, but by the time the film was finished and delivered... Lansing had left Paramount and studio heads Brad Gray and Gail Berman uh, had taken over and uh, they were not happy with what was delivered. Yeah. <laughs> After the first screening for the studio word went around that Kusama had delivered the studio a $50 million art film, uh, which Kusama argued had been her goal the whole time. <laughs> Intent, yeah. But uh, she was promptly removed from the film completely. Which is an action that's often taken, I mean, that's kind of reserved for filmmakers who have gone like grossly over budget or kind of wrong yeah. the studio in some way when Kusama was, I don't know, she was, she was following the assignment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they brought in new editors, started chipping away at the film, and eventually came away with a 71 minute cut that eliminated most of the references Holy. to the cartoon and made zero sense, apparently. 71 minutes? Jesus. Yep. That's, that's barely a feature film. Oh, God. So supposedly they screened this cut and the studio said all right well this makes this makes even less sense so they called kusama back in um oh, God. she said a paramount exec told her i hated your cut but i really hate our cut <laughs> and, <laughs> and um so she was asked to put some input into the final cut although she was she said she was never allowed to be alone in the room with the editor they always had a studio rep like sitting yeah. in the in the cutting room with them so yeah, you know this is one with all the with all the directors cut fervor these days. This is one I'd be kind of interested to see because I think I think Kusama and and, and Hay and Manfredi did kind of put a lot of loving references to the cartoon in, but I think a lot of them ended on the ended up on the cutting room floor, which is kind yeah. of weird for the studio to say, "Hey, adapt this," and then when you deliver like like scenes like there are some shots that are straight out of the cartoon. There's in the opening scene um the the opening like it's the fly right yeah that's part of the the title yeah. sequence of the cartoon is that she traps a fly between her eyelashes which yeah. is built into the to the movie and and there's some stuff like um that good child has this like vest that can alter your vibrations and take you to like an alternate reality where he keeps his his secret lab like that's that's yeah. part of that's straight out of the cartoon but um yeah, it just feels weird for them to say, hey, go adapt this cartoon. And then you give it back to them and they cut out all the stuff that you took from the cartoon. Yeah, this one, I I, I didn't read into I I had read briefly that the studio took it away from her. I didn't know the history behind it. This is this is the one I don't like. Out of her <laughs> movies. This is the one I don't like out of her movies. And I don't blame her for because I think the sets are amazing. I love the vibe of the film. It's a great cast. Sense. Like. It's a great cast. I think the sets look beautiful. I, I the cool like sci-fi vibe to it. Uh the CGI feels very dated uh <laughs> that they use. 
but yeah, so I, 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 I don't really count this against her in any way because I feel once the studio gets involved to the extent they do, they did on this one, I can't really blame her for that. Because <laughs> it's like, if, if she sat out to make an art film, she made an art film. Because it definitely feels like, I, the one part that I thought before I even knew that they, they studio got involved, it's the opening narration stuff where I go, oh, this is a studio note. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like they're like, sometimes sometimes it's better to not explain anything than to try to, try to over-explain things. Yeah. Because sometimes over-explaining just makes it more confusing. Because you can't really... So that's what happens in the opening narration. It's like, we have to set up this world. So it's this long, drawn-out narration from, from Aeon Flux. And I'm just like, wait, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> what is happening in this movie? Um... But I do want to say this with this film, uh, and it's in Girl Fight as well. Very, it's kind of the back, the back burner. But there is a theme that pops up in this film that I think is going to pop up through all of her films, and that is how the lead character deals with grief and tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. All of her films. I was watching The Invitation last night, and, th- and it popped at me. I was like, oh, all of her films deal with grief. Mm-hmm. Someone has died. And you're watching the character deal with it and, and try to find to either figure out why they died with, with, with Aeon Flux or just to deal with the grief of losing someone. Mm-hmm. Even in Girl Fight, it's that. It's the it's, it's it's again, it's it's happened before the movie starts, but she's lost her mother. And that's kind of part of the thing is that she's lost her mom and she has all this pent up aggression and she hates her father mm-hmm. because it's, it, her father beat her mother, basically. Um, and so it's all this aggression she has in girl fight and then Eon Flux that her sister is killed. Well, and something I do kind of love about Eon Flux and, and this, I think the, the, her, her three films where this theme shines through the strongest also happen to be collaborations with Hay and Manfredi. Um, but I do kind of, I do kind of like the, the twist at the end. I think it's kind of poignant. Um, that like because there's this like like people in the movie sorry if i'm spoiling eon flux for you but um people in the movie are kind of like everyone's kind of losing their minds and they all have these like weird memories that aren't real and it turns out that the trevor goodchild who's kind of the leader of this world and his brother are scientists who basically humanity was dying out they figured out how to clone humans and the two of them have been kind of like cloning the entire population of this kingdom and like yeah. starting them over again. And so all these people are clones, but they're still holding on to the grief and trauma of their, of their past lives that keeps like manifesting in these, these weird dreams. And I, I don't know, there's something kind of beautiful about that. And there, there are some moments in this film. I really like like when good child kind of has that memory of, you know, you, you get this, you find out that good child and, and Eon Flux's character were, she was his wife like yeah. many many clones before and, 400 uh, years <laughs> yeah and uh he has this like they, they they cut in this scene of like when they met and it's it's a really nice moment <laughs> it is it is it's, it's the moment when he's like am i going to see you again mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful turn from charlise uh that you kind of have um yeah I, there are moments in this movie that i like again i think it's the 
if it's the studio involvement that really and granted i'm just assuming this but i i, I can feel a studio exactly like, oh we have to explain the world mm-hmm. we have to explain the world when the dream stuff that feels like the art film stuff of kusama yeah um and the kind of memory and grief and all that that's the themes um and studios don't give a shit about themes <laughs> most of the time so that's what i mean it's like it's all about the world and we gotta have the cool action scenes and this or that and and i'll say this too uh, kusama is very good at these intimate moments throughout many of her films and so there are intimate moments in this movie that i do think work as you said so those moments like i said those moments i like but it's it's the when you're having to explain everything to me i just i don't like it yeah. i don't like it um so this was the one where I think because of that, it really, for a 92-minute movie, makes the movie drag to yeah. me. But I do think there is a movie here where it could have been good. Yeah. Yeah. Without, I mean, this is predating the Charlize, like, action hero. Yeah. That becomes Atomic Blonde and Mad Max. And, like, Kusama's kind of the first one where Charlize is really doing this the is lead like, action. This is, like, right on the heels of Monster. Um, yeah. So... Fresh off an I mean, Oscar, Mon- Mon- Monster Show Four, I think is what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, so this is like the beginning of like the Charlotte that, that again stops. It's it's crazy to think with Charlize of how the career kind of she's working, but it's never hitting the peaks post Monster, and then all of a sudden a decade later she becomes an action star. Yeah, but Kusama was trying to do that with her ten years prior. Why do I know you? Why? Why did you come back? What do you want from me? What do I want? I want my sister back. I want to remember what it feels like to be a person. Why do I feel this way around you? Yeah, so, um, movie debuted to, uh, negative reviews and backlash from the uh, cartoons creator he kind of publicly publicly disowned it um it seems by like by uh ultimately trying to make more tame the violence gratuitous sex and weirdness of the cartoon of for general audiences um while still like trying to pay visual reference to the show the end product didn't appeal to either audiences it was a little too weird for for mainstream audiences it wasn't weird enough for fans of eon flux um, so it went on to negative reviews and made 43 million gross on a 65 million dollar budget. After the release of Eon Flux was the first time uh, Kusama was told by her agent she was officially in movie jail. Uh, so, but she said, "Oh, it won't be a problem. You know, all these other guys have bounced back out of movie jail after a year or two and made great stuff. So, I'll be right back." <laughs> there's, there's a quote from Kusama. She said, "Maybe it's supposed to sound like a rite, rite of passage, but so few women get any opportunity to have more than just the rite of passage, which is a big part, I think, of what we really need to be talking about when it comes to women's careers in film. It's the sense that each movie represents some kind of finality potentially to their career, as opposed to the sense of you have hits and you have misses. That's just called mm-hmm. being an artist. I'm very conscious of how frequently great artists in film who are male and also generally called big personalities." get the chance to fail and start again yeah great point but kusama does say if one good thing came out of eon flux uh she and writer phil hay were married after the project and they have a son together and um Mm -hmm. have continued to collaborate on two more films which we will discuss and tv shows Mm -hmm. all right so at so movie jail then that leads to you know the big one Mm -hmm. so um a few years later kusama's in in movie jail 
but she she sent the script uh for the next film from diablo cody the breakout writer of indie hit juno um kusama said she was drawn to the script because of specifically because of diablo cody's indie cred she said i feel like this is someone who's going to win an oscar i've been doing so much like studio stuff like i want i'm sick of the studio even though this is still yeah. a studio film like she felt like diablo cody brought that kind of indie cred to the film yeah. um and she also said she felt like when she read the script she said this is a movie i would have loved to see as a 16 year old girl so i need yeah. to make this for other 16 year old girls out of there um so she met with fox who had the the film and um she said they they seemed reluctant to bring her out of studio jail um she said she <laughs> she had to be uh subjected to this like intense interview about why eon flux turned out the way it did wow she said even at one point they were she was asked to explain eon flux's costume and why eon flux was dressed differently than everyone else in that city and she said, well, it's because she was just coming from a funeral at the beginning of the film, but that scene was cut, so you wouldn't know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but they, they eventually backed her, and she said uh, Fox was really supportive throughout the production. Um, didn't really have a problem with them at all during the shoot. And uh, the only real problem arose with the studio in the marketing after the film was finished. Um, yeah. It was as Megan Fox's first like big role outside of her breakout in the Transformers franchise, the uh, studio decided to capitalize on her sex appeal to young men and marketed the film almost entirely to teenage boys, which was not who the film was made for. Was for even yep. the uh, if you look it up, the poster for the film was. I'm looking at it right now. It's, an it's image her of uh, Megan Fox in a schoolgirl outfit in a classroom uh, with the tagline "Hell Yes." But like very in the schoolgirl, very revealing of her legs. Yeah, and Kusama had a quote where she was like. <laughs> Why, why would you make the poster for this film about how sexy she is this is a film about her transforming into a demon and, and <laughs> eating men whole why would you make the yeah. poster about how hot she is and it's the idea again and, and one of the review one of the i guess the retrospective things you sent of how at this point in time it's like the only gaze in movies was the male gaze yes. and how this was trying to do more of a female gaze uh and, and it's a, and the thing is the core of the movie is about a uh a, a girl on as a girl as a friendship between two girls mm -hmm. um so i'll say this about this movie i never seen it before we watched the day okay or we wow. watched it for this episode i never yeah i never seen it before this was one where it came out and it it did so poorly with critics i was just like yeah i don't want to see that and now i will say this if i would have watched it back then because the way it was marketed i probably would have hated it when watching it now I'm like, oh, this is promising young woman. Mm, yeah, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's 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 different, but the core of it's still the same. They both have Adam Brody in it too. <laughs> um, <laughs> literally, when I saw Adam Brody and the and the stuff happen and stuff happens to me, I was like, oh, yeah, this is promising young woman. So basically, Jennifer's body. Do you want me to explain it or do you want to explain? Sure, it? you can go for it. So promising young woman. Or, sorry, Jennifer's body <laughs> um, is about two friends. Uh, Jennifer and Anita, also known as Needy, as Jennifer calls her. And Jennifer is kind of the the very popular, sexy girl of the school. And Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried, uh, is the kind of the nerdy girl. Kind of the, like, bl I don't say nerdy, but, but bland is kind of what they kind of portray her as. Um, and she has, like, her boyfriend, Shawnee Simmons, and they're just kind of this, like, cute little couple when Jennifer is kind of the, like, she can get any guy... 
she wants including, to including Chris Pratt including Chris Pratt young Chris Pratt popping up in here I was like oh I wonder if he has a big role guys nope. he doesn't he does he dies pretty soon after so basically they go to this band this performance this concert uh at like this local like that they, that they found on MySpace they found on MySpace <laughs> this band they found on MySpace yes local dive bar um in their town known as Devil's Kettle uh Minnesota and the band is is kind of this like indie punk rock band called Low Shoulder uh and Adam Brody is the lead singer of it post OC Adam Brody but just think like I mean just think Fall Out Boy Good Charlotte that type stuff yeah um, very very pop punk very death very dad. pop punk and what happens is you find out is that this band is really wanting to become successful but it's so difficult in the current music industry so they decide they're going to sacrifice a virgin and that will allow them to become this huge star band brody's so much fun in that scene he's like man do you know how hard it is to cut it in the pop punk scene these days man (laughs) satan's the only way (laughs) it's the only way yeah it's it's very yeah it's oh uh, yeah it really it's it's a good meta joke on music industry for the time for sure well the crazy thing is it's it's very prescient because like yeah we've it's it's only been in the last like two years we've had all these this fallout of pop punk bands specifically from that era that were like oh we're we're like sad boys like it's only been in the last two years or so that a lot of them have been exposed of being like emotionally abusive to or, or even sexually abusive to underage fans so it's kind of yeah. wild that that like diablo cody did see that coming a mile away like no one else i f- feel like at that time we were like oh my gosh like you know i, I don't want to i don't i don't i can't think of one specifically i don't want to pin something bad on a on a, like a, like a good yeah, group yeah. but i mean you know like a like a like a group like something like like my chemical romance I was like i'm not saying that gerard way is a bad guy i don't know i haven't looked into that one but uh, people were like oh gerard way he's just like this he's he's just like this goth boy that's in touch with his emotions and uh we've come to find out that a lot of those goth boys that were in touch with their emotions at the time were also not good people <laughs> and and this really nails that with these characters and the problem is the the, the kind of crux of the movie is that they do this sacrifice and they kill they essentially kill Jennifer mm-hmm. is what's revealed half by kind of the midpoint of the film. But the thing is is that the sacrifice is supposed to be a virgin. The issue is that Jennifer is not a virgin, and what happens with the sacrifice that if it's you sacrifice a person who's not a virgin, uh, they essentially turn into a demon. Is what it is. And the, and they feed on men essentially. Her her scared her character feeds men. scared young men is what it is. Um, and that's why. And, and so what was marketed as, as you said, and maybe you'll get into this later with the aftermath, was marketed towards like kind of young boys as a sexy movie. But it really is a revenge film. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's a revenge film of Jennifer getting the revenge on. And by the way, usually like nice guys this is the, this is to go with the promising young woman thing is it's not usually men who were it's not guys who have wronged her uh, no it's it's just like it's dudes who have a specific stereo man i don't even stereotype but just cliche of kind of a uh cliche uh or archetype 
uh, with the the jock or then kind of the emo guy. Um, but they're all trying to essentially like have sex with her at the end of the day. Mm. And so she's like, cool. Cause you're doing that. I'm going to kill you. now. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what it is. No, it is very promising young woman. She kind of, yeah, it is she kind of presents herself to them as a test and they fail. And, and, and re- uh, yeah, exactly. And in reality, honestly, no offense. Cause promising young woman, I wanted more of that and more of what's in Jennifer's body in promising young woman is the thing. Mm. Like I wanted dudes to get ripped apart i know this sounds so <laughs> terrible but like i wanted dudes to kind of get their comeuppance uh and like throughout the movie was what i mean and there's times in that movie where it's just kind of like cool never do that again mm. and i'm like nah man just kill these guys <laughs> like um that makes me sound maybe terrible i don't know um but there's yeah so it's just like in this i was like cool like you're I, I think what they do with Jennifer, because I, I, th- I think Megan Fox is kind of underrated. And I think she has a good performance in this. Yeah, um, I am. I'll, I, I think she's especially underrated within like comedy, which she's, yes, she's very funny. I think funny she's great at comedy. I, I, I will go to bat as a very big fan of the like half season she covered on New Girl when Zoe Deschanel was out. Yeah, she, she and Jake Johnson had like great chemistry and she was really fun in that in that season. I th- I think she's I think she's really funny. And I think I think she understood she understood the tone of this film. Yeah. I feel so scrumptious. Goody for you. You know when you kiss a boy for the first time and it feels like your entire body is on vibrate? Yeah. It's that good. Well that's nice. Um me, I'm still a little bit depressed about, you know, the giant smoldering funeral pyre in the middle of town. MoveOn.org, needy. It's over. Life is too short to be moping around about some white trash pig roast. That's sweet, Jen. You know, I tell it like it is. And besides, you know what? You should be happy for me because I'm having the best day since, like, Jesus invented the calendar. Jesus didn't invent the calendar. Whatever. Other line, hold on. Blow it off. It'll just be a minute. Pooh. I'm crossing you out. I know you said you didn't like it the first time. And how did your view of it change this time? You know, I, I, I this week I posted on Instagram, like people who are fans of Jennifer's body. I want to, I want to have, I want to talk with you about it. And, and a lot of people, you know, have come out and said, you know, it's kind of a camp classic at this point. And I said, yeah. okay, if it's camp, is it camp because of, or in spite of Diablo Cody? Cause there are some times when she has some really funny lines and, but there are some other times when you can tell she thinks like something is funny and it's just cringe. Yeah. And I don't, I honestly don't know there. I, I do enjoy it. I think Kusama does a great job with it. I think Megan Fox does a great job with it. I think Amanda Seyfried does a great job with it. I think Adam Brody's hilarious overall, very much enjoyed revisiting it, but there are still yeah. some times where Diablo Cody will write something and I'm just like, ugh not not that yeah. did not work <laughs> yeah there's a few few lines that i thought of since and i was like that still makes me cringe just like thinking of that line yeah and and i don't know this one feel, and and that's what we can get into it but a lot of the reviews were like you know this worked this this whole like diablo cody creating her own vocabulary kind of worked yeah for juno because juno was presented as like this person that's like so outside of everything else but like jennifer's supposed to be like the most popular girl in school so like yeah is she really going to talk like juno does and 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 that's what the, the first time i saw it i was coming to it i i didn't really know 
Karen Kusama. I I was coming into it as someone who, at the time, I was probably like 15, 16. I, I had seen Juno. I was not as impressed with Juno as a lot of my friends. We all went to yeah. go see it opening weekend because like a lot of my friend group like was obsessed with Juno. And and so this was marketed as like this is the like Diablo Cody's this breakout hit. This is her follow up film. And so that's what I was going into it like, OK, it's like Juno, but a horror film. And then it was like, I don't know, it just struck me as too much of, of Juno as a horror film when I, when I saw it. Just <laughs> just in that, like it really was like they're they're talking in very similar way. And, and I didn't know that it worked. And sometimes coming back to it, some sometimes it does. There's some some really fun moments that are like counterintuitive when when and the 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 way it plays with Jennifer as being a demon and also a teenage girl is is really fun yeah. and, and Megan Fox has a good time with it but yeah there's just sometimes where I'm like ugh <laughs> some of the yeah. lines and yeah those. yeah yeah and I agree I I, I think I know it's yeah okay I, I think the stuff that really works to me is Kusama's direction and I think what if something gets brought down it's that slang that's used to make these kids feel realistic mm. and it makes them feel odd. The thing about cult classics, it, it, they don't have to be perfect films. Um, in some cases, the cult, what makes them a cult classic are their flaws and you uh, enjoy them for their flaws. And so people might like that slang because it it is still of an era of movie making in a way. And because this film just feels so 2000s mm-hmm. just like so 2000s in the dialogue and the and, and, and the and the outfits and the kind of the music choices yeah there's some fallout boy on the soundtrack fallout boy the song the, the song the song the band sings uh that song slaps <laughs> I, I literally i thought it's one of the songs where you're like i feel like i remember this song you know what i mean like it's like it's sounds like something you heard mm-hmm. in this era. I did hear that song because that was that oh, was really? a that was a topic of conversation for like a couple of weeks after we saw this movie in high school. I was like, man, fuck that movie. And and one of my friends was like, yeah, but what about Through the Trees? And she like ended up downloading it and like had it on a CD and she'd like put it on in her yeah. car. And so like like Through the Trees, even though like most of us didn't didn't care for it when it came out, like Through the Trees became something that like my friend group still listened to after the movie came out when watching it too it feels very much that Kusama was influenced by people like brian de palma mm-hmm. with something like carrie um and i think jennifer's body too is becoming very big it is becoming very big within like the the generation z the zoomers with tiktok and stuff I mean, you have to bring up olivia rodrigo here mm-hmm. i mean because because a lot of her music videos specifically with uh was a good for you that has like the jennifer's body type imagery at the end of the show yeah in the music video uh but also not even just that think about this to go fully with all this jennifer's body is a song by uh hole the mm-hmm. band hole that has um uh, Court, uh courtney love in it uh it was there it was the it was on the album live through this and it is a the cover is of like a girl it's Courtney Love, like at prom, holding up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what is that? That's Olivia Rodrigo's sour. That's prom. Olivia Rodrigo sour thing. I'm telling you. <laughs> so it's like it all kind of comes full circle with this mm-hmm. of how much that is becoming the culturally is is becoming a part of this younger generation. Now we just need a now we just need an Olivia Rodrigo through the trees cover. 
I did literally I without this is the craziness of the TikTok algorithm without inputting anything about Jennifer's body into TikTok. <laughs> I came across Jennifer's body cosplay on TikTok the other day. Like as soon as wow. I as soon as I scrolled onto it, it was two girls. One was Jennifer, and one was Needy. I was like, I, I was like, I didn't even have to read the caption. I was like, oh my god, Jennifer's body is <laughs> permeated my TikTok now. I'm telling you, yeah, I, th- I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna keep even getting stronger with uh, this younger generation. Yeah. So for for kind of the fallout at the time, it was a, a financial success. Um, yeah. You know, maybe they did get all those teenage boys in on opening weekend and get their money, even though it was not made for them. It it doubled its budget. It, it was shot for sixteen million. It came. It um it ended up grossing thirty two million in the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was mostly met with with pretty negative reviews. Um, yeah. Although most of the backlash for this case seemed to be against Fox and Cody. Um, Kusama kind of escaped fairly unscathed from this one if you go read a lot of the reviews a lot of them are directed at diablo cody and, and a lot of reviews saying that that megan fox like didn't hit it which i don't know what people were looking for out of that performance because i think she's great in it yeah and i think she really nails you know too going into her performance i think she really nails the difference between like you can tell and there's a flashback in the film to help you kind of notice but there is a difference between jennifer pretending to be like because everyone in everyone in high school is pretending to be cool right and there's a difference between jennifer pre-demonic possession pretending to be this like bitchy mean girl and jennifer being a demon and i think fox plays it pretty really well and there's that moment when like her kind of cool high school persona drops when she's been abducted by this band and you get to see her as like a real person who's who's scared and and who's scared yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, and I think she, I think she handles it all well. I'm, uh, I don't, I don't know why. At any point, I can see kind of the backlash against Cody's script, especially when people weren't kind of ready for what the film was trying to say. But I, I don't, I don't get the negative reviews for her in the beginning. But um, and I also, I also see with Fox. I mean, that scene, the scene where they kidnap her and sacrifice her, it is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it like legitimately from her, like with her character, it is terrifying. Yeah, and Brody's playing it like so cool and <laughs> like such yeah. a douchebag like si- singing eight six seven five three oh nine yep. jenny like it, it's 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 disturbing mm. it's disturbing after this kusama turned to television she did a few tv episodes but um she said she always felt like she was working under the shadow of these two failed films jennifer's body and eon flux mm-hmm. um but yeah like we noted in the years since the movies gained a cult following a lot of people hail it as kind of an early example of modern feminist horror like you said um promising a woman if that really counts but you know stuff like yeah midsummer um you know the, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we've really hit especially in the a24 era this this era of, of seeing horror through a feminine lens um so yeah jennifer's body i think if you break it down is an important part of that so moving on um not long after the release of Jennifer's body, Phil Hay and Manfredi asked Kusama to read a script that they had been writing and planning for their directorial debut. Uh, Kusama read the script and she said she felt an immediate pull towards it. Um, she said she didn't want to step on their ambitions, but she like read it and she was like, I want to make this. Um, <laughs> but she just kind of like gave them some notes and backed off and let them like work on developing it themselves. Um, Eventually, Hay and Manfredi gained some success um, with the the ride-along franchise. Uh, 
yeah a couple of the articles i was reading when they were talking about uh kusama's career they were like they were like hey we don't want to call out her husband for anything but you will notice that these two men who wrote eon flux like barely had a pause in their career <laughs> as far yep. as writing goes um, yeah. while she was in movie jail but um but yeah after kind of the success with ride along they got signed on for ride along too they were just like you know what i i don't know that we're gonna have time to direct this we're not even sure at this point if this sh- should be our directorial debut and kusama yeah. was like oh i'll do it <laughs> <laughs> uh so they all decided to move forward with it under one condition they wanted to make it their way with no studio influence so this was mm-hmm. obviously the the invitation um yeah. and it was shot for a million dollars over 20 days uh under funding from game changer films which was an equity fund set up to finance films from female directors oh wow got a got a very interesting cast some kind of indie act, kind of working actors from la they got logan marshall green who has a very interesting career did kind of breakout film in uh prometheus obviously not a film that that was very well received kind of backed off into more indie fair after that um although he did have a too brief appearance in uh in uh spider-man uh, homecoming um oh yeah he was, he was shocker number one also someone we we spoke about recently in across the universe but yeah um, he, yeah he, he yeah paco brought him on as the lead uh emiazzi coronati as his girlfriend uh michael Hughesman, kind of in the middle of game, game of, of thrones. thrones um he yeah. was also in the hbo series treme before that uh and then and then the honestly in my opinion the character actor of our generation mr john carroll <laughs> i i I could do a whole podcast on John Carroll Lynch, but um, we we could we could do a whole pod if we ever want to do a whole like a spinoff show of Cinnation. It's just like the John Carroll Lynch podcast. I don't think there is another not not just character actor, just actor in general. I don't think there is yeah. another actor who can be as like warm and lovable and yep. cold and terrifying <laughs> and just like <laughs> it's like oh cool. Let me do a double feature of like Fargo or triple. Let's do it. Let's go Fargo, Crazy Stupid Love, and Zodiac. Like, and then throw in an episode <laughs> of American Horror Story in there. Like, and then, but also throw in an episode of Drew Carey Show where he plays his brother yeah. for like six seasons. <laughs> no, he's a man. He's he's terrifying in this. But it's all well, the thing about the invitation. So, so you or you tell me what the invitation is about, or tell the audience what the invitation yeah, is about. So, I just don't know. The invitation opens with Logan Marshall Green and his girlfriend, Emiazzi Cornaldi. They're going to a dinner party. And we come to find out it's at his old house with his ex-wife, who they went through a divorce after the death of their son. And she handled it. It's you know, both of them were grieving. She kind of had a breakdown and left. They, they they divorced she left the country has been kind of gone for two years and now she and her kind of mysterious new boyfriend are back in town they're living in their old house and they've invited all of their old friend group together for a dinner party and when he arrives it's just like you know he's already nervous because he hasn't been back in this house really since their divorce just reminds him of his son's death but but he also comes to find out his ex-wife and her new boyfriend are in this kind of like new agey uh don't want to necessarily call it a cult but kind of a cult like 
this this new age self-help group that is kind of all the rage lately and it, 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 it feels like the setup to bob and carol and ted and alice in a way yeah. right like they go off to some they go off some retreat and like find this new way of thinking and they come back home to kind of like uh uh um to exhibit it to the world yeah or yeah to it, practice it, 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 to the it turns world. out that the, he he keeps thinking like something's off here and it turns out that the dinner party is kind of their excuse to proselytize their their new belief to their old friend group but um, yeah. it's it's kind of this continuing paranoid thriller piece of like he's just like is something going on right now or am i still like so warped by the death yeah. of my son and being back yeah. in this house and um john carroll lynch shows up as like a friend of theirs from their new cult and he's just weird and it is just like it is just like an on the edge of your seat thriller with this like paranoia yeah script wise and um directing wise they really every time you think something is wrong mm-hmm. they give you an excuse to say nothing is wrong yep it is just immediately they're like you think the shoe is about to drop and then like they they're really good at going like no it's just it's just him it's just his nerves the performances yeah. are great michael Huseman's great and these couple of scenes where he's like hey man, he really is, a, like, is amazing in this movie he's like yeah. listen man i'm really trying to like i understand what you're going through but like you're being weird and you're freaking out the guests at my dinner party and like i invited you here as a friend and i need you to just be cool like there there's the scene that i think of it's uh when towards the it's a little it's it's a little bit towards the end so it's not i mean it's kind of a spoiler but when one of the guys in the group hasn't shown up yet and mm-hmm. and low marshall green will is just like where is he he called me he said he was here i just got a voicemail he was here an hour ago. Where the hell is he? And it's just like completely just like everyone is flipping out. You think everything's about to happen. And then something occurs like, oh, it. No, he he he's OK. That guy's OK. Yeah. Or whatever. And Logan Marshall Green um, is fantastic in that scene because that's when he like breaks yeah. down and is like a pop. He's like, I'm so sorry. Everything else is kind of repressed or soft and subtle and just like him. Deal. It's It's inward. And that's where he finally lets it just out in that moment. And it's built to the spell. Like, oh, here it is. This is what's going to happen. They're finally going to figure it out. And then, boom. No, everything's okay. Kusama and the direction, like, it really... She, again, she has phenomenal compositions in this movie. The way she uses the space of this house is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the darkness she's able to do. And I also love kind of how, like, the present... She uses... The way she uses color... The present is very warm, surprisingly, but the past is all very cold. Mm-hmm. Even in the warm moments, it's all very cold when the present is all very warm. And that's the more kind of depressing stuff. Um, but to go with your boy, John Carroll Lynch, I love the sequence. I love and the scenes. I love is when they're playing the game. I want, mm-hmm. and they're all like, I want this. It's like the Tammy Blanchard, Eden's character. Like I've always want, or I want to kiss Ben. I've always wanted to kiss Ben. And it's like, one's like, I want cocaine. And then it's all just kind of funny or a little odd, but still kind of funny. And then Pruitt goes, John Carroll just goes, uh, I don't want to see my wife. Like we were married for nine years. We'd been married 15 years ago. And it's like, Oh yeah, I killed her. And it's just like, what? Yeah. Like the way he delivers it is so 
like it starts off as very like warm and like oh i miss my wife she was this great woman and then it's like yeah we got into one of those fights that just like it it's like kind of like the end of the marriage type fight and i just i hit her and and yeah killed her and you're just like ever the party's just like wait who the hell is this guy mm-hmm. because we have we still have no clue who he is and they have no clue who he is and all of a sudden he just says like oh we just met a guy who killed his wife and ended up in jail now he's out of jail now he's here in this room like this guy has some stuff that's like some mental stuff happening and and he, he's he's a violent person who could burst any moment is what it feels like i think of her quite a bit did she uh pass away yeah, she did. We had been drinking. I had been drinking. We had just come home from a dinner, and we were in the kitchen. We fell into one of those arguments, you know, one of those stupid fights that last your whole marriage. I think it was about the dishes. Somebody started yelling. I don't remember who. I went to pour myself another drink. She tried to stop me, and something just gave. I turned and hit her as hard as I could. Her knees buckled. She hit her head. I think she was trying to get back up. She had her hand out, staring at me. And then... She collapsed and she was gone. I feel like you picked Kusama because of this movie. Yeah. It was the big reason why you picked her. This this movie is incredible. I think I think it is just performed so well by everyone. And it's one of those. And it, it's like you said, it's so well written as far as a thriller goes and the way it like like spoon feeds you like not not spoon feeds you, but like drip, like drip, yeah. drip, drip. And then like reels itself back in. It is it is one of the most like tense thrillers. And I've seen some people who like call it slow paced and I don't I don't understand it. I think it's I think it's because if you come to a thriller expecting violence, like 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 the, yeah. the thing that's being teased at you as violence, you might be disappointed because the thing that's being teased here is grief. It's it's not it's not that like it's not necessarily that violence is always at the end or like death is always waiting it's that will kind of knows that at some point he is going to have to confront his grief in this night and it's and it's teased out kind of like that and it it truly is like for for a a a horror film or a thriller the way it, it deals with grief is incredible and i think i think you're talking about promising young woman owing kind of a, a, a great deal to jennifer's body i think ari aster owes a great deal of of his two films to this movie because that is kind of that's his of of his two films that's kind of his bread and butter right it's like a a, a horror film in which the true villain is grief underneath in, in both hereditary and midsummer and i also think as a as a one million dollar indie film i think this is so incredibly well done, like you said before, and kind of the way it uses its space, but also in the way I think the ending of this film, without without spoiling it, I'll, I'll just speak in general terms, because if you've seen it, you, you know, I think the ending of this film is 
such an excellent way to pull off an indie film in that we've been in this whole world of this house for the whole movie yeah. and the last scene like opens the world up and it makes yeah. it makes the film feel huge without having to blow any of your budget on doing so through sound design a yeah. little bit of cgi and and all of a sudden you've like completely opened up a whole another world yeah. you mean I, I, when the ending you kind of go like man what what else happened in this world mm-hmm. is what you you're left wondering because there's other stories of other houses i guess you could say um or other people in this world of la um but no, yeah, I, I think I think it's a very still thing after rewatching it and then worried if it would hold up or not after seeing it from the video store. Uh, it does. It holds up very well. And I think I think it probably got better even in the second viewing. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Because especially once you once you kind of know what the. Yeah. Once you know it's go, it where is, it's going. Yeah. You can kind of focus a little bit more on on the, the, the underlying grief themes and, and Logan Marshall Green's performance and, and everyone else's performance as well. Yeah. We haven't seen him. Don't fucking lie to me. Call from right beside your front door. David is not lying to you. Joy never got here. Maybe he turned around, man. Look, he might have forgotten something. Well, you never know. Yeah, why is everyone acting so fucking polite? Where's Joy? Eden, what's going on? I have not seen Joy tonight, Gina, I swear. Something isn't right here. There's something very strange going on here, and no one is saying anything. What do you think is happening, Will? Hey, who are you? Hmm? See? See, I don't get why you two are here. Hey, these are my guests. Yeah. Two years. We don't see you for two years, and then all of a sudden, we get invited to this lavish dinner. You're all smiles, spewing out all this jargon with these two in tow. Don't tell me that this is normal. The invitation. It helps people. Well, everybody's in love. No, it's a fucking cult, Miguel! It's a fucking cult! Will, Will sit down! No, no, look, look at the video, okay? It's not about communion, it's not about family, it's it's about fucking denial. You are out of line. All right, no, it's about denial, or you know what it is? It's a fucking brainwash. Yeah, so kind of the aftermath of this, the, the film got distribution under Draft House Films. Uh, it did a very successful festival score. It was that kind of, if you go back and look, through the articles before like reviews or even come out everybody was like karen kusama's back she's like broken herself out of movie jail this is the best thing she's yeah. done since girl fight um movie eventually only made about three hundred twenty-five thousand in the box office so still not super financially successful but it did have a really good streaming run it um Netflix picked it up not long after it came out and got a lot of word of mouth i mean you you, you know from the video store but it was one and it was still kind of that time of Netflix where like not a lot of stuff was on Netflix. So it was one of those things where it was like, you're looking for a horror movie on Netflix. I know I recommend it to a lot of people. I, I talked to a lot of people who had already seen it. So it was one of those. It was still that time where like little indie movies could do well on Netflix, which I feel like now it's just so populated. That's not the case anymore. Uh, Kusama was soon in very hot demand for the TV world. She's done some TV work before this film, but this was like really her breakout and this is when she started doing episodes like halt and catch fire she did man in the high castle for amazon she did billions for showtime um she also started she did get start getting offers from studios um but she turned a lot down she said you know her her experience with the studios before it made her very discerning and she had also reached a point with in her career she said you know 
after Jennifer's body and this movie, she was getting a lot of like kind of dark revenge thrillers. She said a lot of stuff she was getting sent. She kind of felt like, like David Fincher rejects. Um, But she said she set her mind out. She was not going to do any film that was about a man committing violence on a woman. Like if that's what, if that was the only reason for the film existing, she had no interest in it. And she said that was the majority of the scripts that she was sent. Um, uh, she did a short after that for, for XX, which was a horror anthology from only film, female filmmakers. Uh, but all throughout this time, um, Hay and Manfredi were at work on their next script. You can find it if you go back and read interviews for for uh, The Invitation. It's like, and what are Karen Kusama's got the world ahead of her and what are writers Hay and Manfredi up to? They have a script about a gritty female detective out for revenge um so it it was in the works for for a little while so that that turned into our last film uh destroyer so kusama worked with hayan manfredi to develop the script for a few years um she said one of the things she was most interested in uh, in pursuing in this film was one her love of of like 70s detective thrillers like french connection or specifically parallax view uh which we've discussed with her love of warren Beatty. <laughs> warren Beatty, yeah um where she said it was more about kind of pursuing truth or pursuing th- these characters pursuing their something about themselves whereas a lot of the more modern films of this type were about pursuing violence and and she said she wanted to make a film that was kind of leading up to a, a revenge kill but where ultimately the revenge kill was not the point of the film which they do very interestingly in this movie because they're they're definitely they definitely have a distinctive way of of showing that (laughs) yeah yeah so they they finally got the script to a point they were happy with it they started sending it out to agents to see if they could drum up uh any casting uh interest um they said they when they sent it out they were looking for 35 to 39 and they they really wanted to focus more on the aging up it was it's it is a film that takes place with a character over two time periods a character in her 30s versus a character in her late 50s and they got a call from nicole kidman she had gotten the script from her agent and she said i don't know if you've considered me but i would like you to wow and kusama said she hadn't because because frankly kidman was out of the beyond the age range she was she was actually closer to the older age they were looking for than the younger age so they were gonna have to age down um But she said she was really impressed. She she talked to Kidman and Kidman told her she was just at this point in her career where she was reading what she could get her hands on. And she said, I've, I've got enough clout. I'm just calling these directors I want to work with and saying, I'm, I'm sure that Nicole Kidman is not on your list, but I but I think I should be. And um, and when she and Kusama were talking together about Destroyer, Kidman had just shot Killing of a Sacred Deer with Yorgos Lanthimos, where she had done the exact yeah. same thing. She had called up yeah. Yorgos Lanthimos and said, "Hey, <laughs> I want to work with you. I bet you didn't thank Nicole Kidman for this part, but <laughs> but you should, um, which is kind of awesome. I, I really like. I that. like that. That that's but that's that's someone aware here. Like I want to do I want to do good work work with interesting people. Mm-hmm. Like she's not sitting on her laurels of like I want an Oscar. I've made money. It's the I want to do interesting things that I like and that interest me. Yeah. So um." Despite kind of drumming up a very interesting cast, Kusama was still like this as an indie film. Great cast. 
through yeah. and through no studio influence so um they they got funding for their nine million dollar budget from indie financiers yeah they eventually locked down a cast of um sebastian stan who actually auditioned for the um the gang leader role oh silas yeah and and kusama told him like no i think you're chris i think you're the the love interest um yeah toby kebble still someone who's kind of circling hollywood Can't i feel like it. but something's uh, out ha- yeah yeah he's, he's not fully getting it hadn't quite hit on it yet uh tatiana maslani great Phenomenal. great actor we've covered her before on uh stronger stronger yeah. um let's see who else toby kebble I mean, I, I mean, Toby Huss is back from a very brief appearance in in the invitation. Uh, Toby Huss is amazing, by the way. I love Toby Huss and our boy uh, uh, Scoop, Scoop McNary. Scoop McNary, my yep. boy Scoop, and then also Bradley Whitford. Yeah. Don't forget Bradley Whitford. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, it's a great, it's a great cast of character actors or just like up and coming talent. And so, along with cast, um, one of the most important hires was makeup. So, uh, Oscar winning yeah. makeup artist Bill Corso came on. He had just recently, at the time of pre-production he had just been nominated for an oscar another oscar for fox catcher he did um steve carell's makeup, makeup for fox that. catcher so is this your your first first time watching destroyer was this your first time watching Destroyer? It was, as well? it was it was one i was i was excited about yeah um when it was coming out and then it just it was just one of those things that dropped around christmas and i was just busy and it was not it was not something i was going to get my family to go see when i was home and, and yeah. i just kind of didn't didn't get around to it but i I, re- I was like having been such a fan of the invitation i do remember like keeping up with the, yeah. the development of this one yeah i w- yeah i was so stoked to see this and that same thing happened where it was around christmas and the thing about this is the thing about the christmas releases with the oscar stuff it's that if you have those four oscar movies that like all of a sudden get buzz mm-hmm. they get pushed to the forefront and everything else kind of drops to the wayside yep in yep. terms of theater theaters that are being shown, in terms of press, all that. And Destroyer was one where it was kind of like that. And I had a lot of people, specifically videos for people, uh, who hated this movie. <laughs> like, hated this movie. And that prompted me, like, not to go watch it. Because uh, it went out theaters quick. It, was, it wasn't really in, in the, the Oscar race. And you know how it is, is that with people like us, that we're, we, we want to watch all the award movies before... Uh, the awards happen. We want to have like our, our list of a year, like our list of our favorite movies of the year. Mm. And sometimes if we hear enough people saying bad things, we don't watch it. It just kind of falls by the wayside. Mm. And destroyer was kind of one of those. And when watching it this time, I can see why it was not liked. I'm not saying I did not like it. I'm saying I can see why it was not liked because this movie is unrelenting Mm -hmm. in its narrative it doesn't give you anything in terms of like the structure. Uh, it, it's one that I feel like what I wonder what I would gain rewatching it because it's a movie where you really don't know fully what is occurring. Mm. Does that make sense? Would that be correct to say? Yeah. Yeah. The way, the way it feeds you information is, is really interesting. Um, I've seen plenty of films with like split timelines dual narratives but like the way it's it's fed out to you i think it is very excellently pieced together but um yeah it's it's it is but yeah and and it's kind of like violence and brutality and darkness it is just in your face the entire time yeah and i the performances are great i think the kind of again and this is still about grief not to spoil something 
but it's all about grief. It's all about kind of righting the wrongs of your past and still dealing with them years later and how you still haven't lived it down. Um, and it, well, I, I read about her with this movie. It's like she wanted to do an L.A. noir, detective noir story, but she wanted to showcase kind of places of L.A. you don't usually see in those movies. Mm-hmm. So that's why you kind of see like down in Long Beach or like not L.A., but you see Palm Springs, like, but you see kind of the underbelly of certain places you don't usually see in L.A. movies. Yeah. Um, it's but it's, so it's a very like L.A. And, and so essentially, too, that's with, comparing this to Invitation and this and Destroyer of how these two like kind of L.A. groups or ways of thought or locations that are kind of being shown in both these films that aren't usually portrayed with Invitation taking place in the Hollywood Hills. Um and kind of the mythology around that and then kind of this untapped LA uh, potential. Yeah. That's something I I love about the invitation. It's like, if that's set anywhere else, that whole group of people is getting up and walking out as soon as they start their pitch for their cult. But then like (laughs) all the friends are like, it's LA. We got to let them try and like get us into their cult. Then we're going to have dinner after they've got great wine. Yeah. 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 But yeah, so it's very, both are very kind of L.A. And, and with this one, it used L.A. landmarks as a great way to kind of just like to to give the, the world's like get, give the world some detail. Yeah, um, I, I just realized I did not give a, a very good plot description, but um, <laughs> Nicole Kidman is Detective Bell, Aaron Bell. She is a police detective formerly of the FBI who was embedded in her like late 20s, early 30s with another FBI agent. They were embedded deep undercover as a couple in this um, in this gang. Um, and she in, in present day, she's now like pushing 60. Uh, she comes across this John Doe body that bears the same tattoo of that gang and sets out on this to kind of sees her shot to like right her wrongs when we can tell that something obviously went very wrong from her time mm. uh with that gang and so she kind of sets out to track down all of her former uh cohorts from when she was undercover and and kind of see what they're all up to and and work her way up to the leader who yeah. is someone that she has she has a deep deep hatred for her. it's kill pill no no um you know it's funny i read it i read a specific interview with her where someone was like this is a an la noir about a woman out for revenge what makes this different from tarantino and kusama's like have you seen the movie i think this is as far no it's different yeah it's no it's, it's very different i'm just joking about that uh no it's very well tarantino always has a little bit of like I guess levity to his movies, <laughs> even though it's like it's dark comedy and there, there's no levity in this movie at all. Um, except maybe their romance, like the Aaron and Chris kind of. You don't kind think of Bradley Whitford yelling him. at his son to pick his elbow up? That's kind of funny. That is funny. That is funny. <laughs> he just keeps going. What are you doing? <laughs> Bradley Whitford, always great for the, like coming in for those few scenes. Just like always like no pun intended, just knocking it out of the park. Um, with, with this performance no yeah i i don't know this one i'm still sitting with and it's been a few days of watching it i don't know if i i like it i don't know how much i like it mm-hmm. does that make sense 
because it is it, it, it is it's, it's a, a tough, tough movie. One, but I think I think Kusama does extremely well with it. I and agree. there's some things like like you know people came back a lot. There was a lot of backlash against the makeup, um, which might not the wigs specifically. The I wigs, would say, yes, yes, might yes, might not be the best. Toby Kebbell's wig is pretty rough. But but the thing is, I think it's supposed to be a wig the entire time. I think that's the that's the because oh, at the end because because when you, the last time you see him, he's taking off that same hair and it's a oh, wig. Oh, okay. So I, I think so. it's a wig the entire time. But um, I I do think Karen, Karen Kusama contact us and tell us that's yeah. right. I'm not sure. I, wanna, I think I there's hear. some incredible sequences. The the entire kind of if if you divide well, the this, high stuff is amazing. Yeah, I was gonna say if you divide this this up into sequences of like her finding the different members of the gang the whole tatiana maslani sequence is incredible um she kind of she tr- she tails tatiana maslani and and gets and just to think that she might be able to track her back to silas but it turns out that she has tailed her directly to an active bank robbery yeah <laughs> and has to kind of go in and break up this bank robbery herself with the help of like two poor uh is it is that an el segundo don't they say they're like close to the airport i think so i think so yeah, so, yeah like yeah. two random el segundo police officers have to help her stop this bank robbery and then it turns into a chase scene it is it is really well done and kind of ends really brutally but um yeah it does that that whole scene was was incredibly well done yeah i think i do think kidman is great in this movie though mm-hmm um, I know my, my boy Pierre de Bruges of Variety. He talked about how she's almost unrecognizable uh, in this in this role. I do think she is. I not just makeup wise, but I think in her performance, it's a very. It's a very. I always don't know how to explain this to people, but it's a very uh, interior performance. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Everything's being done inside. Uh, it, it's she's not a person that shows a lot of emotion. Um, but that's not to say she is not emotionless. Yeah. It's very much this inward character of, again, but the, again, it's this idea of grief. It's how, it's how we all process grief. It's in a very similar fashion as Logan Marshall green and imitation of they all, these characters hold this grief inside them for so long to where it eats, it could eat them alive. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens to Aaron is that Aaron has a lot of secrets that she's kept in herself that has kind of eaten at her for years and years. And now this is finally kind of a moment to like, cool. I can finally write this wrong mm-hmm. by chasing down this guy who affected our, pl- my plans or whatever, or our plans of Chris and me that we had. It's been my whole fucking life scrapping. Jealous, hungry, scared. I just want to spend one fucking day on the other side of that. I know. That's me too. But this isn't the way. Fucking say it. Do it for me. 
for us. Yeah, it kind of like you said, it, it this movie didn't kind of make it didn't make the Oscar run that year. Um, but it was it was pretty well received critically. It's got a seventy five percent. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Kidman was nominated for a Golden Globe for dramatic lead, but um, didn't didn't quite crack the Oscars. But you know, it's another one of those things. Nine million dollar budget indie film. Maybe you just don't have the the campaign uh, funds. Yeah. You know. Yep. Yep. Not that I'm saying it would have won anything that year, but I think maybe with a little bit more money to grease the wheels, it might have had a few more nominations. It might have a few more Golden Globe stuff, yeah. I think, or and, and maybe some like indie spirit stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know. If, I don't know if that would count as indie spirit. It, it, would, it should get some of that, I think, because it's in that range. Hell, if Netflix movies can get indie spirit awards <laughs> for twenty five million dollar movies, this this something like this would count for that. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a box office success, but uh, combined with the critical critical reception for The Invitation before it and her prolific career in television, I think Destroyer definitely showed Hollywood that Karen Kusama is not going to stay in, in movie jail. She's, Hell no, she She's ain't. not going to let you put her in movie jail. <laughs> yeah. Karen Kusama's going to do what the hell she wants to, is, yep. what, is what I hope. So yeah, and and but right now, what's she attached to now? Because she's got yeah. So she just like I said, she just did the pilot for the um, mysterious Benedict Society uh, that her that her husband and his writing partner wrote for Disney Plus. So yeah, if you thought the the last two brutal films about grief and and violence and and revenge sounded really appealing, you should let your kids right watch this. Uh, series from from the same writer directors <laughs> well let me ask you this is she like i'm gonna say is she wes craven because wes craven did something very similar where he did a kids tv show in the middle of all his horror stuff called case busters hmm. and did an episode of it just to be like yo he wanted to prove that he could do just more than horror is what it was i think maybe she just wants uh because she I, I read an interview with her talking about um destroyer and how much she wanted to show and destroyer that like the violence was not the answer and destroy like it didn't yeah. it didn't bring Aaron closure it just continued to bring her more pain um and she mentioned like she's like i've got a son he's 11 he plays fortnite all the time like i i need to to show him like i i see the movies that he sees and i and i feel like i need to put this out there to show that you know for one thing that doesn't glorify violence out there so you know, yeah. I feel like that definitely, especially for both of them, if you're making all the, I'm sure you want to have something you can show your son. Like I'm, I'm sure that's yeah. an influence on them. But yeah, I, I do think it's like that. You want to show something that you can show to your kids, or that you can you can prove to. I know you said she doesn't want to do studio stuff, but you can prove that like, oh, I can do other things besides violence or horror or something like that. I can mm-hmm. do this kids mystery show. But she is attached. Is she attached to a Dracula movie? Is that still going? Yeah. Do we know? Mm-hmm. Okay, through Blum, through Jason Blum. Yeah, yeah. So you you have our stats for us. Oh I yeah, believe. stats. Yeah, I'll ask you. Popular, most popular film or highest rated film? I think, I think Jennifer's Body is going to be your most popular film. That's correct. I think it's also going to be your highest. I think the Letterbox crew is very much on board with the the Jennifer's Body. You are correct. Revisiting. Yep. Yeah, you're correct. So, Jennifer's Body, number one in popularity, number one on average rating. What's the next one? Uh, I'm going to guess Invitation. Invitation is number two on both of them. 
Uh, and then number three is Destroyer. Destroyer is number three on popularity, not on average rating. Whoa, is it Girl Fight? Prefer? Girl Girl Fight is number three. All right. But here's the thing. Where do you think it rates at? Where do you think these rate at in terms of like three point whatever? Oh man, that's uh, that's tough. I, I think Jennifer's body is gonna be like in the fours somewhere. No, that's too high. It's too okay. high. Three point eight. It, it. Okay, let me tell you because you're, you're it's gonna surprise you. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer's body is the highest with a three point four. Damn. Invitation is a three point three. Wow, my five star review really didn't. Uh... <laughs> really drag that one up, did it? It did not. And then Girl Fight is a three point three as well. Okay. Destroyer is a three point one. Eon Flux is a two point two. <laughs> so yeah. Uh who who do you think the most appearances are? I don't I don't I didn't think about this, but who do you think has the most appearances? Is it, is it Toby Huss with two? It might be Toby Huss. Cause I can't think of someone else who's been in there a lot. I knew that Michelle Rodriguez was supposed to be uh, Aeon Flux. Oh, okay. They wouldn't cast her. I just read that. Um, so it could be Michelle Rodriguez. Um, so those are our stats. So on to final questions. Yeah. Okay, so our first question, is Karen Kusama an auteur? It's a very good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think visually she is. And I would venture and say... Because you know how we, we like the we, the auteur, I think we use as a blanket statement sometimes. <laughs> There's definitely a consistent voice throughout all of her films. Yeah. Which, She's which definitely... Especially comes with, you know, working with the same writers for, for three of them. For three of them, yeah. I think I think her themes are very similar. I think thematically they are, they are similar with the idea of grief and dealing with despair, I guess you could say. Um, uh, all of her films, except The Invitation, are very are all female-driven. So I, I would venture and say she is an auteur in terms of there is a consistent voice. Is she the author of all of her films, as some would say? No. Um, but as you know, as, as Stanley Donnan would say, it's like that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, um, well, I think that's, that's part of the problem of this episode was that she was not. <laughs> so Yeah, well, she, she was the not The studios wouldn't let her be the author of, of some of those it, Exactly. I, I agree with you completely. So like, I wonder, yes, if Anne Flux is different, what would we be saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I I would say yes. I would say yes. Yeah, I, I I think I think she's someone I would be very interested to see, and and maybe in this like kind of later part of her career as she is continuing to push forward as an indie director, mm-hmm. maybe she's going to continue to have more of that chance. I think I think we need more from her, but I do think her with with her collaboration with Hey and Man Freddy with her strong visuals i think the potential is there um yeah. i just think she was kind of hijacked by her her studio her her two runs with the studio but um uh, yeah especially just those those strong themes of grief and the way that that she handles them so well i, I think it's really there um so yeah really looking forward to more of her career so yeah, we kind of we kind of covered what are her running running themes. Name, yeah. But, um, yeah so, grief. so what what genres you know if if we had to classify her as a genre filmmaker, what would you say? I would say, adventure towards horror. I would say thriller. Mm-hmm. If I had to pick one, which is not as niche as as uh, 
horror, but I think I think there's thrilling moments to Destroyer. I think there's thrilling moments if it might be a slow burn to Invitation. I you could say there's thrilling moments in Shiver's body and, and mm-hmm. Eon Flux. Um, Girl Fight is not particularly a thriller per se, but there is action scenes in it um, with boxing. That's more of a sports film. That's I, I guess what do you, what do you think is the big outlier in her film catalog? I think it is Girl Fight, which is which is I think it's Girl Fight as well. Yeah, it's interesting because it's the de- debut. Yeah, it's it's something that's not very genre. Well, well, you can't say like everything she's done, even though she's worked across many genres, everything she's really done since has been genre. Yeah, it feels like her most straightforward narrative. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Brandon, thank you for for coming on my Karen Kusama episode. Everyone, watch Jennifer's Body. It's a blast, regardless of how you feel about it listen to <laughs> listen to through the trees it's still it's still a jam and please 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 watch the invitation because i love that movie <laughs> although maybe <laughs> maybe don't watch it don't start it at 1 a.m by yourself in a dark room because brandon might might have something to say about that at 2 a.m in a dark room till 4 a.m as the thunderstorm is happening staying in a weird yeah. house that you're that you're staying in a weird house that i've never been in <laughs> that i've been in i heard it's, oh it's the oldest house in the neighborhood i'm like oh is it haunted um no but yeah it's 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 a fun movie it's always one i always recommend to anyone that asks for a horror film that's under the radar um so if you're looking for that definitely check out the invitation give, give logan marshall green more jobs give john, keep giving john carroll lynch more jobs baby yeah, i don't think john carroll lynch has any problem working which i'm <laughs> happy for him for but yeah, yeah that's good i think what if, if if all the movies tomorrow dried up for john carroll lynch i think ryan murphy would still continue to uh, to use him to no give matter him what. work yeah. yeah so he's good so so next week we're going to take a pivot in genres and go from these kind of horror thrilling movies to rom-coms with romantic comedies with nancy myers director of such films the holiday what women want the parent traps who's gotta give writer of father the bride a lot of stuff she's very very prominent in that genre so that's next week um but that's all we have for you on this episode make sure you subscribe to the nation podcast on our podcast spotify stitcher or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on yeah guys we'd love to hear from you we always love any feedback and uh, anything any reviews you want to leave helps us improve the show and it helps boost our visibility so get the word out thanks to yeah thanks to the our great uh, our reviewer from great britain who gave us a review recently tell us they really enjoyed the show cheers thank you thank you to our people from uh, great britain uh we are we are becoming international guys so if you are international, because I know we have a lot of listeners that, that listen to it in other countries, try to give us a review on whatever platform you're on there, and we should get a notification from some of the sites we're on that you, if you're in Germany, because we're apparently big in Germany, um, feel free to tell us what you think of the show, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. Um, so yeah, Thomas, as always, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for writing this script. Yeah, for us thanks, Kusa- thanks, for, thanks for agreeing to watch Eon Flux. <laughs> Anytime. I'll, I won't tear it down if you tell me to. Um, all right, guys, and thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.